Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Loma Linda. Listen on 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapira, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now we've got, you know, the room is crowded. You know, I can't get enough attention here. So we've got Mr. Michael Hawley. Um, Hi, Al. <laughs> just, just in case they talk about Jack the Ripper, I'm here. I'm here for you. Yeah, he's a, he's a Jack the Ripper man. <laughs> he likes ripping Jack off. And uh, and we've got the, the famous baseball icon, yeah. Dave Martino. <laughs> Now I'm a hi Al. Now I'm yeah. a baseball icon. Yeah, well, you're the baseball yeah. icon. You decided yeah. that last show. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, hey, that guy isn't even a pro ball player. Well, I know, but it doesn't matter. You're, you're, <laughs> this yeah. is the days, the days of internet, and we can be what we want to be. Dave okay. Martino is now like the new John Smith. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing the balls. So, you know, um, so anyway, um, we will jump right into it, to it today because we've got a man um, all the way um, from across the world talking to us today. He's got a new book. Uh, the book is called China Hand, and uh, this is Scott Spacek. So thank you for being here, Scott. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, wow. So this is quite a, quite a story, um, the book and everything. Um but before we get into the story, maybe maybe talk a little bit about how you came to writing this story. Sure. So the answer is pretty simple. I mean, over the years living in China, I just saw, experienced, and heard about so many things I thought could be really great ingredients for a realistic, you know, torn from the headlines uh, espionage story, and I wanted to write one. 
there's really been so many, you know, great espionage novels involving Russia or the Middle East, but, but very, very few set in China or Asia more broadly. And it just seemed like the perfect time with, you know, China, the top potential rival to the U.S. right now, and the Chinese government determined to displace us economically, diplomatically, militarily. The F FBI is opening a new China-related, you know, counterintelligence case every 12 hours. So I just thought reader demand was there, and, and I, I had the background for a great story. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting now. Um, China it can be quite controversial in, in North America. Like, you know, people have a lot of, both Canada and the U.S. have strong opinions, and it's been in the news a lot about the different issues going on. Um, does that ever worry you a little bit when you um, are, are writing about something from that part of the world? Well, there's two things I, I was worried about. You know, one is I was conscious that relative to a story set, especially in Europe, uh, Americans have generally less background about China, so you'd have to kind of explain you know, the setting a lot more than you would, you know, uh, for another story. So I didn't want to be kind of academic about the book, but I did feel like if I wrote something, I'd have to kind of explain the background in more detail because otherwise people might assume in some ways it's like, either, either they might assume it's like the U.S. in some ways, or they might kind of exoticize it and how they envisioned it. So one is just the kind of education that might be needed. The other, exactly as you said, I didn't want to demonize the place. So, you know, hopefully as readers read it, they'll see that I really... Um, you know, over my, I've spent roughly 20 years um, in China, and, and it's really a wonderful place, you know, in many ways. And having spent so much of my time there and studying the language and really falling in love with the people and culture, I, I really didn't want to create a caricature of the country. So exactly as you said, I think there's this risk of, as, as the Chinese government does become a major rival and, and, and there's a lot of challenges, how do you, how do you talk about that honestly without kind of, you know, writing a caricature or demonizing the place. Yeah, and there's there's quite a, um, there's like, I almost call it a, a cultural barrier, right? Because it must be hard coming from a different culture where it's obvious and try to get past that barrier, and I mean that as in where they actually start to be real with you as a people, as a culture. Like they start to accept you as, as part of themselves. Would you say that's fair? I mean, of course it's fair, and part of it's cultural, and part of it's just, you know, I often say linguistic. Um, you know, and I work professionally, obviously, in China as well, and many people ask me, they say, hey, you know, how, people might say, hey, I find it difficult to work, you know, with, with Chinese for this reason or that, and I say, look, like in their defense, could you imagine if somebody came to the U.S. and didn't speak, didn't speak English, right? How, how would you, as a native-born American person who only spoke English, uh, you treat with, or treat or kind of work with that person, well, of course, it'd be a little awkward or a little bit dif difficult to break that barrier. And I think for them, it's the same with, with people who don't speak Chinese. Um, there's that cultural barrier, you could say, but a lot of it's just, frankly, linguistic. Because I've found, you know, I, I do speak Mandarin, and I, I have certainly found that uh, overall, the people actually are quite direct, quite outgoing, quite funny, quite normal in every, every, every respect, uh, especially once you can get through that language barrier. Is that what you would call the biggest, let's say, um, the biggest thing that, uh, let's say, Americans get wrong about China? Like, it, it, the, it's kind of the culture? I, I do. I mean, it's, you know, I joke, and I, I don't want to stereotype too much, but I, I, I know that uh, growing up as I did in the U.S. and whether I had, you know, Chinese 
uh, there were other Chinese students I studied with or teachers or colleagues or whatever. There is that stereotype that, you know, people will say Asians are quiet. Well, if anything, I find Chinese as a culture, and again, I'm just stereotyping broadly, are, are actually quite quite direct and outgoing and uh, in many ways you'd say quite quite American. Um, but, but of course, you know, you could imagine for people, especially who've moved to the U.S., uh, that don't speak the language natively. And I know I struggle this with this not being a native Chinese speaker when I've had to work work in Chinese. I mean, it's it's very difficult to come across as your genuine normal self when you're speaking in a foreign language. And I, I do think that's a huge element, right? Yeah. What, well, so um, what is the biggest thing we get wrong about China in the States? I, I do think that... There uh, are, I do think there's this tendency, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but when, when people in America tend to talk about China, um, they tend to come from one of two angles, each of which I find is, is wrong. You know, one, one angle is that, is that there is this exotic, people exoticize China and think that to understand it, you have to speak with the, these mysterious China hands. It's a little bit of a, a joke, obviously, with the book title, but, you know, long time, people who lived in China for a long time, who love the country, and they can kind of translate this mysterious culture because because it's so foreign and so different. Uh, and then when you speak with those, you know, so-called China hands, often maybe they are kind of in love with China and, and, and generally view China through rose-tinted glasses as well. So there's this Mistake one, I think, is to exoticize the place and not ascribe kind of normal incentives and normal motivations to China or Chinese people. At the flip side, which also is kind of exoticizing it or treating it as, as an other, is is to just demonize it and, and and describe you know ulterior motives or whatnot. I mean, in in my view, and this has been my experience working there professionally, negotiating contracts. It's also been my observation with, uh, you know, with, with U.S.-China relations more broadly. The best thing to do with China is to treat it as a normal country driven by normal motivations. And, and I always joke, you know, Chinese people, I think people in general, uh, tend to be motivated ultimately by the same things. I mean, historically, people want, you know, they want, they want money, they want power, they want relationships, they want sex. I mean, there's there's just so many normal things people want, and then they pursue them in some way. And I broadly think that the best way to think about China or Chinese people is to think of them very normally and assume that they're going after normal things. And in China's case as a country, you know, of course, they, they've grown a lot economically. It's remarkable just how much bigger, uh, how much wealthier China is than when I first went there 25 years or so ago. And of course, China wants to kind of throw its weight around globally. I think that's very normal and not very strange. It doesn't make them evil. It just means they're trying to uh, play a bigger role in the world and maybe be, frankly, the top, the top dog. Is language the biggest barrier to those um, who can't speak Chinese living in China, or is, is, is it something else? I think so. Uh, you know, it's it's not. Uh, I don't know if either one of you's you know been there, but it's it's not. Um, I I find anymore such a difficult place to be there. I say anymore because when I first you know when I first went there, the per per capita income in China was you know under a thousand U.S. dollars. I mean, the people in general were downright poor. Even the relatively wealthy in Beijing or Shanghai, you know, the the the, the hygiene standards, the 
the infrastructure. It was a poor developing country. I mean, when I first went, I made 250 U.S. dollars a month uh, in China was my was my salary. And so back then you could say, well, you know, it's a real challenge was, you know, you couldn't get around. You couldn't. It was hard to get online. It was hard to make phone calls. It was hard to, you know, you'd heave kit uh, food poisoning on a certainly weekly basis, often every few days. I mean, it was definitely a challenge, you know, a hardship posting, as they used to say. Um, I think today it's, you know, I think it's it's still not as wealthy as the U.S. by any, any standards, but it's it's a different country, but it's, to me, not fundamentally different. Um, living day-to-day, I'll say, it's not fundamentally different from living, let's say, in a, a, a very foreign European country. You know, that said, clearly, you know, I, I left in 2020, you know, soon after COVID had started. I, I should say that in addition to language, something that does kind of, I'll say, wear on you. I mean, clearly there is a lot of surveillance. Clearly things are being monitored. Clearly um, it gets frustrating when you see sometimes the way things are reported in the news, you know, the manipulation of things. Like clearly that, it doesn't, it doesn't affect, I'll say, your day-to-day like living standards. It's not difficult because it's difficult to, to get something to eat or, you know, live your kind of life day-to-day. But clearly I think emotionally, um, especially as an American who grew up elsewhere, the uh, the control of information, the you know the authoritarianism that you do see. I mean that that does I'll say wear on you. It doesn't typically impact you day to day until until maybe it does. Um, mm-hmm. As you've seen, some Americans get in trouble. But I don't know if that answers the question. I know it's a little rambling. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the premise of the book. What what's the basic idea in this book or the basic story? Well, the, the basic story, and then I'll get into maybe how I decided to write or came, came about, uh, you know, came up with the plot. The basic story is it's kind of coming-of-age adventure story meets spy novel. So the background is, you know, a new university grad gets an offer to teach at a Chinese university, and he just goes off. You know, he studied a little bit of Chinese, and he goes to China looking for adventure and to perfect his Chinese. He ends up teaching at, a, at an elite Chinese university. Uh, where they happen to teach diplomats and, you know, frankly, spies. Um, but, you know, midway through his time there, the CIA approaches and just, he says his beautiful colleague and love interest is the daughter of a top general who's on the verge of defecting, and they need his help to get her out. So it's supposed to be this simple mission, this simple operation. Um, but, of course, nothing goes according to plan, and it ends up being, a, you know, a chase for his life, a run for his life, you know, with the full power of the Chinese state after him. That's kind of a quick background. I used to say... Um, for people old enough to remember some of these books, I used to say it's between genres. It's a little bit uh, a book called Rivertown, which was a nonfiction book by Peter Hessler about, you know, going to teach in China and experiencing it. It's a little bit of Rivertown, you know, guy t- teaches English in China, meets the firm. He doesn't realize what he's signed up for, you know, meets the, the born identity. He's kind of transformed into a super spy. Um, that's kind of the background. Um, how did I write it? Well, you know, Teaching back when I did at the school and then living for many years, I, I just frankly saw, you know, a number of things that I thought could be, or I heard about things that could be the basis for a great novel, whether it's um, the, the surveillance and authoritarianism I mentioned, whether it's going to kind of diplomatic or consulate-related parties and obvious, you know, seeing people that were obviously intelligence officers or whatnot trying to kind of buddy up to people or um, being 
you know, frankly, you know, as many Americans living in China have been, you know, detained uh, by the police at some point, just some, some kind of adventurous things that I thought could be great elements of the story. But then the real plot idea came from in December 2000. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A, chop, a top Chinese colonel named Xu Jinping defected while with a military delegation in the U.S. And it just got me thinking, you know, I, I guess it was easy for him to defect. He was he often traveled to the U.S. for work. He he could just basically, you know, leave. He could just basically uh, defect while in the U.S. But did he have a family? How did they get out? Who might have been involved in helping them? And I realized or I, I knew about a story where a Princeton professor after Tiananmen Square had been involved helping a... Chinese dissident to actually flee, you know, even though he was sort of under house arrest, you know, he helped, Professor helped this guy flee to the U.S. consulate or embassy in Beijing and eventually, you know, get out. And I just started thinking, okay, what if there's this top PLA official like Xu Jinping in, in 2000 who needed to defect, but, you know, to get his family out, you know, they need somebody's help who's living there. It just happens to be a random American uh, who's just doing something normal like teaching or studying or, or working. And, and then everything kind of went from there. So that was the concept. And uh, I guess for, for readers today, it's it's a little bit like Tokyo Vice in the sense, except in Beijing and with PLA instead of the Yakuza, in the sense that it's kind of an adventure story living in China. And then this American kind of gets caught up, you know, in a, a crazy kind of espionage story. How is it you create your characters for something like this? Because it sounds like there's a lot of reality and then there's a, you know what I'm saying, there's some a lot of reality, but there's also fiction in that. So do you draw from real people to create the characters, or is this just totally your, your own? Well, it's, it's clearly a mix of both. So as, you know, as I, as I tried to say, like the, the plot overall is heavily drawn from a whole series of real events. So I mentioned the inspiration of the Chinese colonel defecting, you know, I mentioned the inspiration of this Princeton professor who was involved. There were a bunch of other things as well. So clearly the true elements are, you know, there's also the U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. There's Bossy Lai and the new leftist movement and a CIA officer who kind of, un who, a turncoat U.S. former CIA officer uh, named uh, Jerry Chinsing Lee, who, who's believed to expose much of the network. So much of the plot is kind of inspired by, I say, real events. And then the characters Again, it's a, it's a bit of a mix. So for, be for better or for worse, I will say, especially 25 years ago, relatively few people went to China. So I, I joke that there were a lot of real characters there. Uh, so, you know, kind of the old, you know, you, you joke the old China hands who'd been there since the, you know, since the 70s or early 80s, kind of very interesting characters like like the, uh, you could say the Tom, the Tom Blum character that's in the book or or other just... Uh, fairly random Americans, maybe like myself, but also, you know, the, the character Will is a little bit inspired by a former military guy that, that I taught with at the school. And, and clearly, in Andrew's case, 
he's he's inspired by you could say elements in my own life, but but it's definitely not me. I mean, what I what I sometimes say is in the same way that you know Jack Carr has drawn on real elements uh, from his own experience as a Navy SEAL to create James Reese. Well, I've tried to do the same with Chinahan, but clearly you know Andrew Callahan is not me, and none of the characters are are, are directly real people. Well, you are clearly Lily. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, my my wife my wife uh, my wife uh, is kind of suspicious of uh, of who this mysterious Lily might be, but uh, yeah, it's definitely not me. <laughs> well, how, how do you experience your characters? Do you do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear the dialogue in your head, or is it more um, th- that you visualize the story as you're putting everything into prose? Well, the the, the real challenge, the real thing. You know, I'm a first time writer. I, I've never. You know, I never took a writing class. I never, uh, uh, this is really the first thing I've ever written. And the, the real danger for me on that, that question of how realistic is it is uh, I, you do default sometimes to writing, especially this book is in the first person, obviously. When you're writing in the first person, writing something that, that starts to come across like too much of a memoir or too autobiographical, and, and you do, at least I found, I defaulted to almost, having Andrew come across like me, even, even when I tried to fictionalize him, I was afraid, I was afraid that's how he came across. And, and as a result, I think, and you know, the first, the first, first and second drafts, I think came in at like 450 pages. And I think the biggest, the biggest change, frankly, between those early drafts and the final was just slashing stuff that was too close to me and uh, making sure that I was really creating a character as opposed to, uh, you know, recounting personal events. So uh, that's, as a first-time writer, I do think I default to uh, things a little bit closer to my own experience, but that's probably natural. Scott, how about uh, Hong Kong? Do you get Hong Kong involved? Because uh, I had been there before the the time when they uh, became part of China. and then, But that's very, uh, lots, of, lots of English speaking uh, was going on there. You know, in, in, in an earlier draft, because I've, I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, I, I traveled there back when I was teaching, and then I, I did live there at one point for a few years. Um, I, I did try to bake it in because I was trying, you know, so many kind of fun international adventure stories do kind of uh, jump from city to city and so on. In, in an earlier draft, there was there was a key scene in Hong Kong. Um, I, I removed it all because I just found it um, a little bit difficult to bake into this story. But uh, you know, wait for the sequel and it will show up show up there. <laughs> so, at the end of the day, someone picks up the book and they take it home, read it. Is there something that you want them to take away from the book? Is there a subtext or something other than? the entertainment and the story itself? The, the only real subtext, I mean, I, I do hope that readers uh, go away and look, clearly the book is dramatized, clearly it's fictionalized, clearly, and I'm a little, I shouldn't say embarrassed, but, you know, clearly there are elements that are uh, a little over the top, I mean, as in any adventure story, but but I really hope that, you know, readers, especially ones who maybe haven't been to China uh, or Asia in general. I mean, hopefully they learn something. Hopefully they feel like they've a little bit gotten to experience, you know, a culture they didn't they didn't know better, didn't know very well, and and and, and hopefully they feel like they understand it 
you know, just a little bit better. And then hopefully, um, because of some of the plot elements about, you know, of course, China's trying to, I think, usurp the U.S. as a, as a great power. Um, you know, hopefully people start to take China a bit more seriously. I mean, I'm always astonished, and this is one of the, you know, backgrounds to the book. Like I said, there's, there's so many stories focused on Russia, for example, as a, as a threat to the U.S., as a rival. People have grown up with the Cold War and, and so on. And I do think that's a big driver of why, you know, even though, at least in my view, the only, the only existential threat to the U.S., the only country that could possibly surpass the U.S. in, in our lifetimes is China. It's the only true near-peer or soon-to-be-peer military and economic rival. And yet, it's astonishing to me that the headlines overwhelmingly just focus on Russia and the Middle East, and our diplomatic corps continues to focus on Russia and the Middle East. Um, it, I really hope people start to take China a bit more seriously as a major power, as a rival, um, and I think that would be a good outcome. Oh, so why do you think everyone... Um just sort of doesn't take China so seriously. Why, like, why they put Russia? I, I, I sort of think that Russia tends to be more aggressive, like in their moves, especially like what they're doing now and before in Croatia and stuff. If Russia wants to do something, um, they'll just go do it type thing, and, and it doesn't surprise me. Um, but what, what do you think is the reason that in general people don't take China so serious? I, I think there's two or three reasons. I mean, one is people don't have the background. And, and look, just a generation ago, China was pretty poor. So th this, is, this wasn't a challenge, I think, that we had 25 years ago, right? So I think one is people didn't grow up with this challenge. They didn't kind of study it in school. The diplomatic corps didn't grow up, um, you know, taught to, to, to treat China necessarily as a rival. So I think there's, there's a bit of background is kind of one. I do think there's a second element, which is I think China as a country has very intentionally for many years. I mean, Deng Xiaoping had the had the, the adage, uh, I'll get it slightly wrong, it was something like, you know, bide your time and hide your brilliance. Uh, this idea of China, while it's relatively weak, should go out of its way to come across as non-threatening and, and not uh, get the U.S. to focus on it. And then building on that, you know, there's clearly, clearly, a, you know, a massive, uh, I'll say, uh, lobbying and influence effort uh, by China and by, I'll say, friends of China to to not treat China as a rival. So I do think, and I talk a little bit, I hint about this in the book, even though it's set years ago, I do think China has, has truly infiltrated, I mean, U.S. academia, U.S. corporates, they actively, you know, push U.S. corporate corporates to lobby on China's behalf. Don't don't let the U.S. You know, if you if you don't help us get the U.S. government not to push back on something or not to um, treat us like you know, if you don't uh, lobby on our behalf, you know, we won't let you into China. We won't let you do business here. And and I do think that universities, academics, uh, the Chinese government, many many people lobbying on China's behalf have kind of kept it out of the focus. I mean, you do see even even in books and media, it's interesting trying to get a China. I've heard this from many people. If you try to make a movie focused on China as a rival, it gets killed because they know that China will punish the publishing company, the movie house. I mean, obviously, people saw this with Top Gun. Top Gun, yes. People, people were all worried. Look, if you even show this patch, 
the 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 the, the movie comp the movie house will never be able to show another movie in China. You see the same. I heard the same with with uh, with books with with writing my own book. It was definitely an issue getting it published. I heard it from very well known authors, and I can't disclose who they are, who've proposed sequels or even had a best selling China related book. And uh, you know, people said, "Look, we just can't make this into a movie because you know we're not allowed to touch on China." And I do think the cumulative effect of all these things is is the average person never hears about China's arrival, and so they just think it's not an issue, uh, you know, until I think one day it will wake up and be a major issue. And I think that time is now. I think the uh, FBI uh, director Ray recently made a comment that he was stunned by how much espionage has been going on with China when he came into pop, uh, you know, his position. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, even to personalize it or give it a true anecdote, I mean, I, I, I used to work with a lot of U.S.-educated Chinese engineers, and I remember one of them half-joking but half-seriously saying that basically everybody he knew that studied it or worked in the U.S. in a technical area at some point either was contacted or knew of a close acquaintance that was contacted by the local Chinese consulate to hand over some sort of information or technology or whatnot they had they had access to. China is, is hmm. well well known for, you know, they, they manage actively, you know, the um, uh, there's these so-called Chinese students and scholars associations. It's basically like the Chinese Student Association at every major U.S. university. These are part of the so-called United Front. They are actively managed by the Chinese consulates. Uh, the Chinese consulates monitor the activity of Chinese students in the U.S., and they actively push them to help where needed or help where wanted, uh, you know, in the U.S. with information, intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. It is truly, as, as I think Ray has said, like a, on China's part, a whole of society effort to, to steal information and, and, and gain leverage over the U.S., and, and I do think people need to wake up to you know, it's, again, it's not that China's an evil place. I just think they're leveraging every asset they have in a very systematic way. And the U.S., I think, has been very naive about this threat. I agree. And also, I think what's been happening the last few years, and this is where Russia is involved, too, is the United States seems to be an experiment for authoritarians to see how much they can get, uh, the United States can get controlled by fake news, the whole system. They're watching very closely. <laughs> Oh, look, and, and it's not, and to be clear, I, I agree with you entirely, and Russia has been a, a real problem there. And let there be no doubt that China does exactly the same things. And I think, you know, with TikTok, I am, look, two, here are two examples. One, we're doing this, this meeting on Zoom. You know, Zoom's back end is entirely in China. Uh, th I have no doubt this, this call is monitored in China, uh, you know, the vast majority of the Zoom engineering team is in Shanghai. I have no doubt uh, that, that, that they leverage this, right? Uh, likewise, TikTok. No doubt whatsoever, as they've even admitted finally in a, a month or so ago again, everything that goes, every morsel of information that goes into TikTok runs through Beijing and is, is being analyzed and monitored and leveraged in some influence campaign, you know, by China, either today or in the future, by, by Chinese intelligence, let there be no doubt, right? And I think it is astonishing to me, as much as we've talked about so-called fake news and Russia, Russian disinformation, which is a real threat, to be clear, um, China 
is either doing or looking to do the same things, and they're looking to leverage platforms like Zoom and um, and TikTok, which which all run through China. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And house of mystery. They're they're leveraging everything. I can see it. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, and look, the U.S. does as well, you know, like as they will point out, you know, China has found flaws in Cisco routers and, and all sorts of things like this. And they'll say, hey, the U.S. does the same thing. And, and I'm not denying that. So back to my point about, you know, let's treat China as a normal country. Well, let's do so. But in that, in that, in that uh, way, let's, let's be eyes wide open about maybe the vulnerabilities we're creating, um, you know, by doing different things. And in some cases we may say, hey, you know, it's fine to import, uh, I'm, I'm making it up, to import uh, toys or consumer goods or some things. But you might say, hey, do we want, uh, do we want to have uh, our social media or telecommunications running through China? You know, as, as, as you might have seen in the news just this week, there was a story, a report, I think, by CNN, where they said, you know, there's a, a belief that potentially, you know, Huawei uh, cell towers near uh, missile bases in the Middle East and Middle Midwest uh, we're, we're able to block the potential launch or communications with, you know, with, with nuclear weapons in, in Wyoming or something, right? Yes, and yes. Let's just, be, let's just be eyes wide open about the vulnerabilities we're creating, and some we can accept and some we probably can't. In the same way, by the way, I say China effectively blocks all these areas that, that I'm talking about. So, you know, they've, they've long ago, roughly in 2008, they kicked out all the Western, you know, Internet companies. They certainly... Uh, are trying to block or rip out U.S. technology across their their economy. So I often say it's not about demonizing China. I say let's just treat China as a peer, as an equal, and and let's look for some symmetrical re- uh, relationship. And if they if they block our goods, you know, let's not do it in a kind of over the top um, uh, nonsensical way. But you know what? Like there are probably areas where they've blocked some things from our side and. Maybe we should just treat them equally, and maybe we can then jointly agree to lower barriers. But until they lower some on U.S. Uh, technology or products, maybe we should raise some on our side. Right. We interrupt our programming. This is a national emergency. Important details will follow. Are you prepared? Legacy food storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. Look, we know that boy's going to ask again, so let's be ready. Fine, I'll be him. You ready? Ready. Mom, could you hook me up with a GoPhone? You'll run up the bill, son. Yo, that's whack, Moms. GoPhone is totally different. What? It'll only cost me an arm? Chillax. It has unlimited talk and text. Seriously? Word. Okay, we'll get a GoPhone. Really? Uh, really? That is the bomb. Do you even know what the bomb means? Yes. No. Hey! Oh! 
Go Phone, only from AT&T. With unlimited talk to 65 million wireless AT&T customers and now unlimited text to anyone on any network. AT&T, your world delivered. Now back to the show. When you're when you were putting the story together, when you were um, in, involved somewhat, and and you do any sort of research, or you're doing any sort of you know work on this story, or were you worried about being watched? Well, I, I have no, no doubt. I mean, it's it's funny when the cold, you know, the Cold War ended. All these people who had lived in Russia or Eastern Europe, they discovered that there were these files on. You know, on them. These might have been very normal people who just happened to visit Russia or USSR at the time. Um, I have no doubt there are files on me. I have no idea. I have no doubt that um, a little bit, as as Andrew in the book discovers, you know, a, a bug. I have no I, no doubt there were there was surveillance equipment and there's various files on me. Um, and certainly, you know, without going into too much detail, I mean, there were incidents where it fairly innocuous. Uh, I was at a Harvard alumni event in roughly 2008, 2009. And I'm not quite, I still don't exactly know what was going on. It was a relatively small event in Shanghai and at least 20 police kind of came in, lined us all up, took all our photos with, you know, high resolution cameras from multiple angles. And I don't know if this was an early attempt to kind of capture our faces in a way that they somehow didn't when you entered the country. Cause obviously they take your picture when you go in. I don't know why they did this, but it was, one of the odder things, but I'm sure that showed up in some file. And, and of course, yeah, of course we're monitored. And I tried to, you know, bake that into the book as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. And I think that uh, it's kind of scary in a way, just this, this, this whole knowing about all this stuff and being sort of somewhat in, in, in involved in it. Does that sort of put you on edge a little? Well, it, I mean, sometimes I do. I do wonder if it's made me paranoid. I mean, uh, paranoid is a bit extreme, obviously, but it, it has definitely opened my eyes to things that the average person, um, you know, wouldn't think about. I mean, you asked what are the challenges living living in China. Clearly, and I, I've spoken with a bunch of reporters about this. Certainly, every reporter I know at some point has been arrested or detained, and many people I know who've, like myself, who lived in China for years, especially. You know, years ago, at some point, we were, as, as one example, I was talking to a reporter about this at, at, at an anniversary, at a Tiananmen Square anniversary. We happened to be walking through Tiananmen Square on June 4th of, of, of some year, and there was a protest. Uh, some people unfurled a banner, and, you know, we got kind of tackled and thrown in a van and held for, you know, several hours being asked, you know, were we affiliated with that protest? What were we doing right there? That was not a coincidence, of course you know, confess, confess that somehow we helped orchestrate it and we're with the CIA. And that went on for several, you know, uncomfortable hours. And clearly there's surveillance. Clearly, um, you know, people have hinted at knowing things that uh, that could compromise us. Clearly, clearly that they've, and I've, I've read, I was reading a story about this just a couple of days ago, um, I think with regards to the Fed. Uh, yeah, there's a story about the Fed a couple of days ago, I think, in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, where um, it's alleged now that, that China has a network working within the Federal Reserve, and they've been using that to, you know, try to get information about rate changes and maybe influence uh, influence things. Um, and clearly, in, in the case of one person they were trying to leverage, they basically said, look, you know, we have dirt on you. We've been monitoring your calls, you know, either 
either um, uh, you know help us or we will um, you know reveal this. So just traditional blackmail. No doubt with with you know what they know from Zoom and monitoring. It's well known. You know uh, they uh, will tap probably everybody who's who goes to China. Your cell phone gets penetrated. You know some type of malware gets put on it. Clearly, if you use uh, WeChat. Uh, there's some kind of malware that monitors your microphone and probably camera. Um, clearly, they will use that for blackmail and in key situations. I have no doubt. Yeah, we call that compromise. Us, yeah, us, us, exactly. us, us Russian agents. <laughs> it, 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 it's exactly it's exactly the same thing. And there's you know um, there's uh, you know well known in in, in um, Espionage books is the story of you know honey traps and so on, and China is also well known for leveraging that, uh, just as Russia does. So all these things, it's not that China's evil or totally different, but let there be no doubt, they play hardball with the best of them. Right. Yeah, you know, and I don't, I don't think um, people necessarily um, dislike China more than let's say Russia or anything else. But isn't it, isn't it more about? the way they treat their own people, because isn't that kind of, uh, um, you know, the idea in, a, in America is that China is still very uh, bad to its people, and there's not a lot of freedom. Um, do you think people would treat them as a more serious threat, let's say, if they were a freer country? Because in a sense that if they had more of a, um, a country that run more like the U.S., I don't know. I, I do think that that maybe the the reason, or or you know one one reason, even people who go there don't always see it as a threat. Is I, I should be clear. You know, when you go, the the, the people again speaking in with broad strokes and stereotypes, the pe- the people are very warm. Typically, if you visit for a business trip or you visit as a tourist, you'll have a wonderful experience. People will be very nice. The average person is very friendly, and you'll go away with this. And, and by the way, you typically—it's funny. I—I uh, I got a, a negative book review from somebody who basically commented. They said, "Look, I visited China 20 years ago, and 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 uh, nothing like this happened to me." And I, I actually interacted with the person, saying, "Oh, great! Glad you went there. I hope you glad you had a good time." And um, I sort of got to know him a little bit better. And he was—he basically said he went for five days in 1998 or something, and had a great time. And he didn't see any surveillance, therefore it couldn't be happening. And and. I do think that I do think that um, you know that sort of personal experience influences things in a, in a major way, and and like I said, I also think that many there are so many Chinese a big a big role too or issue I think is not issue but influences there are something like three hundred thousand Chinese students in the U.S. There are literally millions of of Chinese who now work in the U.S. People interact with Chinese people all the time, and they sort of say, "Hey, China's not so bad." I work with. I work with Jack. He's a nice guy. I couldn't believe anything's going on. And by the way, Jack might be perfectly innocent and a perfectly nice guy. It doesn't mean that that uh, the Chinese government, you know, maybe as you're hinting by separating the government from the people, it doesn't mean that the Chinese government isn't isn't very calculating and trying to, uh, you know, do things. And and by the way, it's also the case back to why the Chinese people themselves, as you were just hinting, why they say what they do, it's because they all know they're monitored. They they have to watch what they say or they could be in trouble because, you know, it is a, a very authoritarian country. Do you have Japan involved in your book at all? 
at, at, at the very at the very end. So again, wait for the sequel. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, um, it, it does it does end a little bit in Japan. There's a couple Japanese characters, but no, the the book itself, you know, I um, a little bit linked to what we've been talking about. It's it's funny that I wrote it originally. I just assumed I would write a book in the present, but but back to where I started and where we started in the discussion about what were the challenges. I felt I found myself trying to educate the readers so much on basic elements of how we got where we are in the U.S.-China relationship and so on, that it was almost easier just to start at the origin and say, okay, the, the story takes place 25 years ago or 20 years ago, and mm. it's at kind of on the ground floor of kind of China starting to plan these things, maybe trying to get the U.S. distracted in the Middle East for 20 years so they can break out, maybe trying to plant these um, you know, agents in the U.S. or or leverage companies or leverage students or get compromised, as you said, on on people. So th this story takes place 20 years ago, and it's a bit of an origin story. Um, but but yeah, the, the the sequel will heavily involve Japan, at least if it turns out as I'm currently planning for it to. Uh, and there's a little bit of involvement in Japan, but otherwise, um, you know, I moved here really after I finished the book and. It didn't originally intend for Japan to play a major role. <laughs> but I'm sure they are going to be anyway, because they're both power financially powerful. Well, well, clearly the reason it's involved and, and the reason there's an obvious linkage is um, Japan historically has been kind of top dog in Asia, at least in, in, in modern times, at least you know, clearly in the last hundred or so years. And clearly before you know China passes... The U.S. It, it will have passed. It already has passed. You could say Japan, and Japan definitely. I mean, China definitely has a as a bit of a vengeful mindset here. I mean, uh, Chinese are educated. I talk a lot about this in the book. There is a real patriotic. They call it patriotic education. They drill into students' heads this idea that you know Japan is evil and we need to get revenge on Japan, and it it is. Frankly, they, they sort of do the same with the U.S., that the U.S. has always tried to hold uh, China down and we need to kind of rise up and, and pass the U.S. and we'll get our revenge on the U.S. too. Um, but, but, yeah, Japan feels very threatened. There's a real rivalry. Uh, there's a real sense that if there is any conflict, Japan will kind of be at the front lines. So, so clearly, if you're writing an espionage-related story, it's not difficult to have Japan play a role there. Yeah. Wow. So did you have a sequel plan? Like in your mind before you were, uh, finished this book and, and doing a sequel and idea, did you, did you sort of outline all this ahead of time and kind of know where you're going to go and just telling the story? Is there going to be more than another sequel or what, what's kind of your idea? Well, you know, like I said, the, the original idea here was, or, or if not the original, the idea that I had relatively soon was that this would be kind of the origin story of, of a series of books, I'll say based on or inspired by actual events, because there's so many real espionage-related stories. So obviously, as I said, this one is primarily inspired by the defection of a, of a top Chinese military official. There are other stories you could say in my head. I mean, in the news every day is an espionage, it's a cyber-related uh, uh, espionage, cyber theft story in the news. And without giving too much away, that's going to be uh, at the core of, of, of the sequel I've planned. And similarly, 
you know, we've already hinted at the role that uh, U.S. corporations play in all this. So China leverages, um, you know, the the you know the, the China leverages access to the China market to influence U.S. universities and academics to push them to basically toe the line with China. So you see it with the NBA. You know, if you if you speak up about if even one player tweets about Taiwan, the NBA may be banned from China. So you know what NBA. You go lobby on our behalf, uh, you know, to to uh, to get our view out there. Likewise, any major company, you lobby on our behalf, or we will kick you out. You know, same Google. Even though Google is not currently in China, at least uh, domestically, in the way they used to be, there's no domestic, you know, Google.com. Uh, Google makes a lot of money uh, cross border, helping Chinese companies advertise in the U.S. You know what, Google, if you don't want us to shift our ad dollars to Facebook, you lobby the U.S. government. Uh, same with banks. That whole role of China twisting the arms of U.S. companies and, and universities, getting them to effectively, in many ways, uh, be on China's side. I mean, I always, going a little bit on tangent here, but I, I'm always astonished that you had Google and tech companies partnering in many ways on AI with the Chinese military uh, through uh, universities, but really with the Chinese military, while at the same time, you know, China, Google in particular, and, and I think uh, others basically said, look, we will not work with the U.S., you know, certainly ICE or the U.S. military on AI because the U.S. is evil. You know, and they didn't say say it explicitly, but they would they would not work with the U.S. government in some of the same ways that often they were working with the Chinese government. I just think that's absurd, and all these things will uh, right. show up equal. I'll put it that way. So, so it sounds like you're going to bring uh, the series uh, from like '98 and into uh, current times. Yeah, if you if you if you jump to the last page, uh, it sort of gives it away. But I, I did toy, and I can still go back to this. Originally, my agent and I were talking about kind of stepping forward one step at a time. You could always have these lookbacks taking place over the last 20 years, like things that were buried and now have come out. But I think just be, just because people often do want a story in the present, and there's so much going on right now, that uh, I think the immediate sequel will take place, uh, you know, in, in current times. Right now. So now um... – how do you like people, readers and stuff, to get in contact with you? What is uh, your contact information? Uh, do you have like a website, social yeah, media, so phone e number? E easiest way you can find me at, at scottspacek.com. I've got my my author page. You can find me at Twitter at scottspacek uh, as well. Those are probably the two best: the website or at Twitter. Um, I think if you if you just search for the book China Hand or China Hand Scott Spacek, you can find a whole bunch of other, uh, whether the Simon and Schuster or Post Hill sites or other reviews from Kirkus and, and others. So uh, pretty easy to find me. Yeah, of course, we'll have that linked up on our website and everyone can find you with one click, you know. Um, so on the new one, are, are you going to involve the um, pandemic and are you going to even touch that or do you ever go there with that? I haven't, you know, I haven't yet. I do, I do hint at some conspiracy theories about the pandemic, even in China hand. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of allegations and hints and, 
at some point, uh, you know, a Chinese official says, well, you know, it wouldn't be so hard for us to do, you know, bioterrorism or so on. Uh, so that, that a little bit pops up and the city of Wuhan pops up, you know, very tangentially in China hand. Um, I, I haven't explicitly yet put um, the pandemic uh, into the, I'll say the core elements of the plot, but, I, but I'm also relatively early in, in writing it. So, you know, you never know, but the, the, the sequel is very focused on the kind of cyber espionage and, and uh, chi China influencing companies and kind of all these parties and the dynamics. So not doing a good job of pitching it, but it's still early days. <laughs> well, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be, um, I don't know, very, you have to be very careful when you get into conspiracy too, especially with the pandemic and things like that. I would imagine you not want to get too deep into that. Well, you have to in general, because again, back to my point about not wanting to demonize China, you've got to do that. And, and also to be frank, like, as I said, it is, it is, I'll just say sad, the extent to which, um, Maybe influence. I mean, China does a good job. You, you might have you might have uh, seen in the news. Often, the Chinese government very openly says that it's racist. It's racist to criticize China, right? If you criticize the Chinese government, you're just being racist. And and I do think they've cleverly leveraged a lot of the the, the kind of whether it's the culture wars or the kind of um, cultural dynamics in the U.S. right now. Uh, you know, to get their way. And I will say that, you know, whenever you write a book about China, you, you're a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't on almost every element. Because I kind of find in, in sharing early drafts with people, I either found I'd share it with a so-called old China hand who'd say, no, this is too hard on China. You're, you're demonizing them. Or somebody would say, this is, how can you, how can you make China look like they'd be spying on the U.S.? You have, you have that group. And then on the other side, you have the kind of, you could say Fox News or hard extreme right conservatives were saying, no, no, you've got to amp it up more. Like you're, you're downplaying just how evil China is. So it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, I'll say touching on China because people don't know it well. And many people seem a little dissatisfied, whether it's agents or editors or movie houses. Um, so exactly as you said, it's very tricky. I've tried to thread the needle, um, but ultimately I'll leave it up to, I'll leave it, leave it up to readers to decide for themselves. Were, were you in China when the pandemic hit? I was actually coincidentally in in, uh, in Hong Kong um, at for that very recent period. So we were in Hong Kong, uh, but I was I was working a lot. I was working almost every week in China um, right up until the lockdown. So we we knew they were going to lock down. We I had been working in in Shanghai almost on a weekly basis, but living at the time in in uh, in Hong Kong, and I was in Hong Kong until late uh, 2020. So they had already, you know, really they locked, tried to get the chronology right. You know, um, basically uh, schools shut roughly, I think it was January 24th of 2020. Uh, they were closing the borders. It was either from, I think from roughly March 1 of 2020. And things were actually not terrible on and off in lockdown in Hong Kong in early 2020, but schools were closed. And as I said earlier, you know, in the, in the prep to this, we have two young kids and we just decided, you know, given the way this seemed to be moving and, you know, we'd been looking at, 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 at going elsewhere for a while. That's, that's why we left. But yeah, I was very much in, in greater China, I'll say at the beginning of the pandemic, living in Hong Kong and often traveling to mainland China. 
Or he was really living in Wuhan. He probably knows a yeah. little bit more. We got to talk to him more, Al. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's going on here? So, was it a bat or was it a conspiracy? Is it was it self pre-made? You know, look. What do I know? But all I will say is, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm back to the back to the point about about China leveraging influence. I I do think, and I am not a virologist, and so in that regard, I'm just like all of you. But it's a little bit, I think, is. John Stewart said, I mean, look, there's a level four, you know, bio uh, research lab at the epicenter of where this breaks out. The, the, the speed at which I think China was able to lobby and push, you know, and twist arms of people to, to say that that is absolutely not possible. The speed at which, you know, the WHO and the U.S. basically dismissed the idea that this could have been a lab leak, I think was criminal. I think it's, in many ways, it's, look, I'm a layperson, but it's the obvious reason, it's the obvious cause. I'm not saying that China engineered it. I'm just saying that they, to me, and to basically everyone I know that lived in China, they say, of course, this was a lab leak. But I think this was a clear influence campaign. And they, they basically twisted the arms of all the U.S. researchers that were doing research in collaboration with China. They twisted the arms of companies. They twisted the arms of media. They very quickly pushed. I mean, you had all of U.S. media. And this was a clear influence campaign, also probably aligned with the fact that everybody wanted to demonize anything affiliated with anything that Trump said. Clearly, though, to me, the obvious story uh, was was it was somehow a lab leak from from, from that, that Wuhan uh, lab. But, you know, like, I'm not a virologist, but the, the speed at which that whole concept was dismissed and criticized as racism or whatnot was, was truly a remarkable Chinese influence campaign, uh, right up there with anything Russia's ever done. So, coincidentally, the uh, Secret Service lost their emails on January 6th and at that time. <laughs> Something strange. Exactly. And in the same way, it would be nice, you know, the same way that the media will jump on any Russian conspiracy, I would encourage them to investigate China conspiracies. And some will be false, but some will be, some will be true. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know Bill Gates created the whole thing, right? Come on. <laughs> you know, I had nothing but urges to buy Windows and sell my Mac ever since. I thought, I it, was, my... I thought, it, was Zucker, I thought it was Zuckerberg. That's what I heard. But, uh well, that's yeah, true. right, right. <laughs> well, this is great. I really appreciate the conversation. And uh, now the book we're talking about is called China Hand, and our guest is the author, Scott Spacek. So thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. If you plan to run for any public office or if you're an elected official with a tough campaign ahead, 
you definitely need a radio show on KCAA to build your brand and attract voters. Think about it. You can broadcast and podcast a weekly show on KCAA for $150 a week for an entire year, production included, and spend less than the cost of a fancy mailbox stuffer that voters throw in the trash. Your one-hour radio program will be carried on three frequencies every week in the Inland Empire, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. So if you plan to run for any public office, call us at 281-599-9800, and our CEO will personally help you. Get started today on KCAA, the stations that leave no listeners behind. Call 281-599-9800 for details. Tune into KCAA Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. for Coffee and Cash Flow with Stephen and Anthony. Stephen Crawford and Anthony Skinner share their expertise of financial markets and offer a unique perspective on retirement security and the impact that Wall Street and Washington have on your retirement income and your overall quality of life. Coffee and Cash Flow looks beyond the propaganda of Wall Street and Washington for a realistic perspective of financial markets and the rules that control the game. Tune in for Coffee and Cash Flow with Stephen and Anthony every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Right here at KCAA Radio, 1050 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. And online at KCAARadio.com. The stations that leave no listener behind. Tehebo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E-B like boy, O, then continue with the word T and then the word club. The complete website is TehuboTeaClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TehuboTeaClub.com. KCAA Loma Linda. Listen on 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, 